Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 91 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Tuesday morning, September 18th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. You watch the Emmys? I did not watch the Emmys. Uh-huh. I, I really didn't watch most of the Emmys because I was tired and working really hard. I, all I will say is apparently my TV watching choices are better than my football predicting skills. It's a- that that didn't surprise me because I know you're rooting I, against the Longhorns. I blew, I blew the UT prediction, man. I got lucky on that one. We'll we'll talk. I actually want to talk about the Emmys because even though I didn't watch the awards, I do watch the shows, and I'm eager to hear. I actually don't know, so you're going to get to tell me. And I can spoiler react. alert: the the, the the best comedy series, which I plugged, I think, very early on on this podcast, mm. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh yeah, absolutely. You were a huge fan of that I, show. I am a huge fan of that show. All right. Um, and best drama, Game of Thrones. Shocking. There's a shock. Although there's, there's there lots just, of contenders should, for that. No. Well, I, okay. Well, that's what we're going to talk about there during the frivolity segment. There should be segment. a category. There should be um, best Game of Thrones, and then there should be best show, <laughs> best drama, not called Game of Thrones. It doesn't have a you know. $10 million budget per episode. Yeah, it is kind of an unfair, unlevel playing field. I mean, come on, yeah. they're, they're making like they're eight making movies, movies yeah. and calling it a season. Awesome. All right, All anyway. Right. Um, what have you been up to? What have uh, I been Other up to? than watching the Emmys? I, what have I been up to? So I've been brief writing. Um, we we <laughs> filed our, our petition in Larrabee on Friday. This Which one's Larrabee? The retiree uh, court martial case. Okay, yeah, um, I, I'm very interested in that so, one. So number 18-306 for you Supreme Court docket watchers out there. Okay. Um, one of the, you remember one of the weird Dalmazi trailers got kicked back to the Court of Appeals for uh-huh. the Armed Forces? Yeah. So actually our brief on remand is due there this Friday. So that's been keeping me busy too. Um <laughs> I know. I feel like a real lawyer. You are a real lawyer. I uh, love it because I don't do anything like that. I'm not involved in any case. No, instead ever. you do you do actual academic stuff like what you've been doing since we last sat down to record. Oh, I had I had such a fun weekend um, since last Thursday. Bay Area. I, yeah, I was out. I was out west in the Bay Area for a whole set of cool things. So first of all, it was like 64 degrees and sunny the whole time. It was really nice. Yeah, no, you you went the right time of year. Just don't go in the summer. Yeah, it was it was lovely. Um, you know Mark Twain's old line about San Francisco. I do not. The coldest winter I. I ever spent was a summer in summer San Francisco. In San Francisco. <laughs> well, so the the first thing I want to give a shout out to Shemen Keitner and her awesome seminar students. Uh, Shemen had uh, me and Susan Benish uh, come out there and talk about, I was talking about deep fakes, which is uh, something that my co-author Danielle Citron and I have been talking about a whole lot. And, and Susan was talking about dangerous speech. And we had a great session with these students. Steve, they asked the best questions. I was so impressed. And then we turned around that same night and did a World Affairs Council session. And so you can actually see the video of uh, Shemen, uh, Susan, and I talking about these same issues. And that's on my Twitter feed at Bobby Chesney. And then uh, and then transferred over to Berkeley after that. And there was this really cool event. I think we need to try to do something like this. So the Robbins Collection, which is this fabulous uh sub part of the library at Berkeley, um, which uh, is, I guess, in the business of periodically hosting these wonderfully curated small group seminars to talk about a recent book or academic work. And we gathered to talk about Amanda Tyler's fabulous habeas corpus in wartime book. What a coincidence. I was at a symposium at Berkeley in April to talk about habeas corpus in wartime. But yours was probably more of the conventional format. This thing was great. It was just about eight people uh-huh. or so. And there were there were colleagues from around the world. We had Faculty from Israel, France, uh, Scotland, England. Um, Dean Chemerinsky even made an appearance, which was awesome. And and we spent 
eight hours basically in, around this one table in this small room talking about her book. And the things we talked about in that book, very relevant for what you and well, I yeah, are going to talk totally, about today. Totally. It's actually a great segue. Today is a it's a deep dive episode. It is a it is a surprise deep dive episode. It is, and so why why another deep dive so soon? We just did a couple. Well, um, it frankly was a pretty slow week, and it's not been a full week since we last recorded. Yep. Um, we we have a few things we we could have tried to make an episode out of these declassification. The declassification is maybe the Harmadol insert petition. Yeah, it we. We're going to have plenty to talk about, no doubt, by next week. But it was a very slow news uh, week. For Except. Na- for Well, for non-national security right. law. Uh, it obviously was a very busy week in the world of politics and, and sort of high stakes law and policy vis-a-vis the Kavanaugh nomination. And we want to we underscore how uh, acutely serious we recognize the situation is. This this situation, Steve, it, it implicates um, imperatives of respect and dignity for both accusers and the accused in, in a really high stakes, the whole country's watching it context. Um, I think we both, but even before it was announced that there would be hearings on Monday, we both had agreed in communicating with each other that we agreed there needed to be, there need, this process needs to slow down. Yep. They've got to fairly explore the accusation. Yep. So, um, but, also, but also that rather than sort of you know, wildly speculate for 20 minutes that we'd probably be better suited waiting to see what happens. No, that's right. I think, uh, I think we're going to, so we, we're acknowledging what's going on outside of our realm. And yeah. now we're going to go back into our realm of national security law. I'll, I'll just say, I mean, just to follow up on one point I said last week, I, I said last week that this whole you know, confirmation process had made me very sad oh, yeah. um, about the Supreme Court. This hasn't made you feel better. This has made it worse, right? I mean, like, you know, I don't, I, folks are going to make up their own minds. Folks are going to have their own views about what this means and how it should play out and who they believe and who they don't believe. I have no brief for how people think about this other than just to say none of this, no matter how this ends, is good for the Supreme Court as an institution, for popular perceptions of it, for its legitimacy. Yeah, it's a, this is a very difficult time. Yep. Okay. So um, so instead of that, we were like, so let's just, like to pick, pick something easy like yes. like uh, military the, commissions. The arc of Supreme Court history on military commissions. We have some real landmark cases True. that everyone should know and love. And 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 as you mentioned, are relevant today. So and are highly relevant today. Yes. So, so we we actually thought, dear listeners, that we would treat you to an unplanned deep dive into the Supreme Court and military commissions from Milligan to Kieran. Maybe a brief pause at Yamashita and Eisentrager. Oh, always good. Yeah. And then Hamdan. That's excellent. So we have a lot of history to cover because we <laughs> what, can't. Why? That's just all of American history. Well, and we can't really just drop in with ex parte Milligan, right? We got we got to say a little bit about. Uh, Is this one we get to talk about Winfield Scott? Oh, I love talking about Winfield Scott. This will be fun. Um, so. I think the the first thing to say is what's the overarching reason to care about these sometimes down in the weeds cases? Um, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's be, the the stakes at bottom are this has to do with the fact that we have a panoply of constitutional rights that that constrain one of the most coercive powers of our government, the power to prosecute and imprison you, or maybe even uh, impose capital punishment on you, and. That is a set of rules and rights that are attached to the civilian federal criminal justice system and, of course, by extension, eventually, to the state systems. Um, But what about the fact that we do have this enclave, if you will, of military jurisdiction that has at least a a core of a very proper, very historically grounded jurisdiction over military service members? What about others? What about these scenarios where it bleeds out in military jurisdiction to prosecute a crime takes over from civilian 
jurisdiction. So uh, a name folks should be familiar with is William Winthrop. Uh, so William Winthrop, who the Supreme Court refers to as the Blackstone of military law, which, Bobby, they mean as a compliment. Um, you don't take that as a compliment? Well, so apropos Amanda's book, um, you know, there are some places where Blackstone wasn't always right. Um, well, you know, he's human. But but here, at least, I think everyone agrees, Blackstone... This, it's it's certainly, if anybody tells you, dear listeners, that you are the Blackstone... They mean of, it well. Yes. Okay, so, so Winthrop, <laughs> writing in, I think, 1916, um, in his classic work, Military Law and Precedents, identified three Bobby species of military jurisdiction. I thought you were going to say three Bobbies. Oh, well, three Bob. Also, three Bobbies. Um, three Bobbies of military jurisdiction. So, Bobby number one um, is what we might call military law. Um, and military law um, is basically the court martial system. It is the law that governs members of the military. Right, so this would be like uh, rules that govern criminal punishment for disobedience of an or order. Non-crim- or, or non-criminal punishment. Yeah, right. Exa- okay, no, mention that. That's an important little wrinkle. Well, listen, I mean, the, the court martial, we, we think today of the court martial system as this deeply judicial and judicialized structure. Um, the reality, both historically and even still today, is not quite as simple, right? right that it's more about discipline. It's more about discipline. So non-judicial punishment and NJP um, is an important part of the court-martial system. Um, and there are three different types of courts-martial. I mean, a general court-martial looks very much like a, cr- a criminal trial in civilian courts. But a summary court-martial really doesn't. A summary court-martial is a technical administrative procedure. Um, and if you go back to the founding and to when Winthrop is writing, it really wasn't a very judicialized process. There were no appellate courts um, in 1916 when Winthrop is writing. Um, it was, you know, this very, very sort of administrative internal thing where the only real judicial review was collateral review, whether through habeas corpus or other collateral remedies. Um, so, you know, the but but either way, right, Winthrop says category one, military law, the law that governs the military. Okay. Um, category two um, is um, military uh, 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 government, right? So here he's talking about areas where um, by dint of circumstance, Right, and the military just happens to be in charge and is basically acting as the de facto civilian government. Right. So a scenario in which, if not for the military imposing law and order and there'd having be a court, there'd be there'd be no law and order. There'd be right. no prosecution. So, so classic example: think post-war Germany. Right. Post-war Germany after World War II, um, there's no German government in the first couple of years after. Germany surrenders. Um, and so the United States, in you know, conjunction with the Brits, the French, and to some degree the Soviets, um, exercised complete jurisdiction for criminal purposes over occupied Germany. Those were provost courts, where it wasn't that these courts were applying military law. They were applying civilian law. It's just that they were the government. Because somebody's got to do it. It's a vacuum-filling function. And indeed, there's a Supreme Court case I don't think we'll talk about much today. But one of my favorite sort of obscure national security law Supreme Court cases is a 1952 case called Madsen versus Kinsella, Mm -hmm. where the court has no problem with a military court in occupied Germany um, trying a service member's spouse um, for the civilian crime of murder. Right. Because if, if not that court, then, then, then who no. else? Right. And then the third category, and this is the most controversial, um, is the sort of law of war military commission, 
right? The the context where the commission is operating not in place of civilian courts, but alongside civilian courts, where it's doing something even though the civilian courts are there and able to operate. And this, Bobby, I think historically has been where most of the fight and controversy has been. It's certainly where most of the interesting discussions are today. Can I can I add a qualifier on that? Please. So I, I'm thinking because we're going to talk in a moment yeah. about the Mexican War and yeah. one of the one of the key early uses of military commissions. And there's not a civilian court option actually available. And it, it is kind of playing a vacuum filling role, but it's still not a provost court type scenario or category two, because it's not just enforcing, you know, Mexican law because the Mexican local court got shut down right. while, while, you know, Scott's army is moving yep. through. It's, it's a blend of two and three. It, 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 yeah. And it's, it's, it doesn't have the ability to convene a court's martial because there's, as we'll talk about in more detail, these people may not be within the jurisdiction of the court martial system. So you can have that vacuum filling somebody has got to convene a court, yep. so why not us? Um, when it's not just ensuring local law and order under the local laws, but is instead enforcing the laws of war. That's right. Now, you could argue, I mean, so this is, I think, a mostly semantic debate, right? You could argue that that really is just another species of a provost court, and that it's a provost court, the jurisdiction of which extends beyond purely local law, just like today. Okay. U.S. Yeah. civilian courts have the jurisdiction to enforce the international laws of war through, for example, the War Crimes Act of 1996. But I don't think for purposes of our discussion Agreed. today, Agreed. that distinction It is certainly true, Bobby, that, the, that, that historically the lines between these three categories have not been always honored. Right. Um, and indeed, one of the problems we run into in looking at Civil War era precedents is that it is really yeah. hard to tell sometimes when a Civil War era military commission was in the third category. Or the second. Or the second. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, that, and that'll come out in our discussion of Milligan. But, of course, I think we're duty-bound to talk about Major Andre first. Ah, Major Andre. Major Andre. Major Andre. So, military commission, uh, the the colonial uh, army, the colonial forces yep. under Washington. So, Andre was a spy. A, a British spy who was... Je he, suis he was espion. A, he was a British officer. He's Major Andre. He was a British officer who was engaged in espionage out of uniform when he's caught. Yep. And, By the way, sorry, before I yeah. forget, I was, last week I said I was going to tell people who's, you know, the Fred Dalton Thompson line. Nadi. Oh, yeah. So you, you challenged our listeners. So I, no I didn't know it. what you were talking about either. So I felt so vindicated that our dear listeners did not. Yeah, know it's either. from Barbarians at the Gate, where he plays the, the chairman of American Express. So and he's talking about like the price per share of RJR. Barbarians at the Gate, I read yeah. back because I was moving to Winston Salem yeah, to go yeah, teach yeah, at Wake Forest. Yeah. And uh, it was it was very it was a wonderful book. Yeah. Never saw the movie. Yeah. Is the movie actually any good? Yes. All right, so back to Major Andre. Back to Major Sorry. Andre. I, just want, right. I was going to forget that. If I Long and short it, of yeah. it, um, a, a very famous, it was, it was very much in the news at the time, a well-familiar print, uh, precedent illustrating that military commissions were used at the founding by Washington's own army uh, because they didn't have court-martial jurisdiction over the uh, the member of the enemy armed forces who was caught spying. Right. So you convene a military commission in that sort of gap-filling role so that you can enforce uh, the, the principle that if you capture the enemy spies, you can't execute them, which they did. Okay, so True story. True story. Now, although, although, again, I mean, one of the things we're going to, I think, talk about a lot is a lot of these precedents are equivocal, right? Was the, was, I mean, first of all, this is before there is a constitution. Right. So it's hard so, to argue there's yeah. a constitutional rule to divide from it. No, the, yeah, go ahead. No, and second, it's just like, so is Andre subject to military jurisdiction simply because of the offense? That is because he's a spy yeah. or because he's treated as being tantamount to a part of the armed forces? Well, I, I think he, well, I think he was. I mean, right. he was definitely he was a member of the the British Armed Forces in that context. So if Andre had been right, so so just for example, in trying to figure out what historical precedent to draw from Andre, right? Yeah. If he had been a civilian 
I think it would be clear right. cut which which category of military jurisdiction was being asserted. Right, right. All right, fast, okay. fo- fast okay. forward. So then we have a constitution. Then we get a constitution. Constitution says nothing about military commissions. Right now, the Congress has given the power in Article One to define and punish offenses against the law of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, Make com- rules for the government and the- regulation of the land and naval forces. Mm-hmm. The grand jury indictment clause of the Fifth Amendment exempts from grand jury indictment cases quote arising in unquote the land or naval forces so there we've got we can take we can pause there and say that on one hand on for ordinary civilian law enforcement where where federal rights are concerned there's a panoply of rights like the right to you know grand jury indictment the the whole panoply of criminal procedure basically that's constitutional but jury trial especially no right that and that's going to be huge you have a right to a trial by jury uh speedy trial by jury uh, of your peers. And of course, that was a, a central issue in right back to the revolution itself. And at the same time, there's this recognition that, of course, that doesn't mean we can't have some forms of military jurisdiction, at least for the armed forces. Right? Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I think there's, listen, I, I've written about this at some length. Um, folks who really want to do a deep dive reading, um, my 2015 article, Military Courts and Article 3, which was my job talk paper oh, at awesome. UT. Um, but there's no of all the categories of non-Article Three federal jurisdiction, the one with the clearest constitutional. Yeah. How do I say? Um, pedigree. Pedigree. Yeah. Well said. Yep. Um, is military jurisdiction? Everyone understood that there would be at least some military yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah. No one. No one thought like, oh, it stopped doing courts martials. It's all in federal court now. But here's what's weird. What's weird is rather than accept that it's just this atextual, you know, historical gloss, the Supreme Court has insisted that the textu- that, that there's a textual basis, and the textual basis is some combination for service members of the Make Rules Clause and the Grand Jury Indictment Clause, and that it's the exception to the Grand Jury that actually covers also, Bobby, the Article Three judge, um, the Article Three jury trial right, and the Sixth Amendment jury trial right. The Supreme Court has said that it has read, it, and it actually the first time it says it is Milligan. Oh, it's saying the exception to the Grand Jury Clause also is an exception about these others that weren't actually mentioned, they forgot to mention. Which is such a weird, which is not how we, we don't usually right. read express language in one provision as yeah. implicitly incorporated into four other provisions, but ever since Milligan, that's the Supreme Court's approach to the jury trial. Interesting. So that's going to come back to be really important when we get to Curin. Okay, so, well, before we get there, let's get, we got there, let's, we're still pause, in the 19th let's pause in route to to Milligan, uh, is there anything before the war with Mexico no. we should mention? I mean, oh, so Andrew, I mean, so... Oh, yeah, Andrew Jackson. You got to mention Jackson. I don't, the, the problem with Andrew Jackson is just like his suspension of martial law A lot of, in New Orleans, a mm-hmm. lot of what Jackson was doing was without any higher authority. Oh, they, yeah, that was the whole thing. He's, he was a rogue, in this respect, yes. a legally rogue commander. And so I, just, I don't think we can really place value, like no. what one rogue commander does on the battle. So during the Seminole yeah. War, Jackson convenes these battlefield courts. Right. Very controversial. Yes. These these two British uh, citizens, right? Yes. Uh, Amber, Ambrister? I so, forget. Should, like, uh, this uh, is because, so friends, we don't prepare. We just come uh, in here and start talking. Anyways, there were two, there was a controversial imposition of military commission yep. jurisdiction. Well, he also, listen, he, during the War of 1812, he threw a federal judge in jail. No, in right. New so, so this is all uh, the pattern and practice of, of Jackson as an interesting historical figure. From an interpretive perspective, Steve's right that it's pretty hard to make a claim that there's a lot of interpretive weight that flows from the practical precedent of what Andrew Jackson did because it was widely criticized at the 
time. It's not the sort of right. uh, historical episode that provides you strong evidentiary basis for saying we have a gloss where X was done, everybody knew it, and everybody seemed to think it was fine, so that's a precedent. But if you're it inter- wasn't like that. But if you're interested in the story, which is fantastic. Oh, it's a great story. Um, there's a great book by Matthew Warshower called Andrew Jackson and the Politics of Martial Law, All right. um, which would be, I think, a good read. All right, so You know, we need to compile a list of books we recommend. True. There you go. All right, Mexican War. Okay. Winfield Scott, go. So the United States uh, invades Mexico, and there is – it's a complex uh, scenario that changes over time, but there's two elements that are pretty consistent. One is that accompanying the American regular armed forces are a number of volunteer units that by all accounts included many, many disgraceful episodes of abuse and uh, and harms committed on locals, right? So you have these American persons who are with the larger force, but that are not clearly subject to the court-martial jurisdiction that the regular armed forces are subject to. So General Scott, and this is true for, for the other generals in the other theaters of the Mexican War as well, but we'll just focus on Scott. He's got a discipline problem. And of course, as you said earlier, that's the original heart of you know, the military prosecutorial capacity is both about law enforcement as such and about imposing discipline. Preserving, preserving good order and discipline. Exactly so. And so he relies to some extent on commissions to be able to do with these irregulars what he would have done with his own regulars, to, to put it shortly. Totally. So that's one bucket. And then separately, as the war changes, you eventually have a lot of guerrilla warfare. And so you have you have Mexican irregulars who are ambushing the supply lines and taking stragglers, et cetera. And in an effort to try to tamp this down, they begin prosecuting the ones they capture in some instances, not all of them, but some of them. And I should underscore, sometimes they just chose to detain. They didn't always feel like you had to prosecute. And that's my time. That's my cue for my favorite reminder. (laughs) Military detention is different from prosecution in a military tribunal. You don't say. Yeah. So detention for the duration of hostilities, that's different from prosecuting. So they captured some of these guys and often convened military commissions to prosecute them. And it was considered a, you know, a way to bring the law of war or, you know, similar to Major Andre, right? That's how they thought of it. There's a person here who's out of uniform, but they're fighting. And we think that's a violation of the laws of war. We're going to impose uh, a penalty on that. By the way, I I just figured out which pop culture reference was, was being triggered every time you say Major Andre. Yeah, what is it? Monsieur Andre. Monsieur Fema. What is that from? Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Messieurs Andre and Fermat are the, the benefactors who come in and buy the Opera Popular. Oh, that's really great. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen Phantom. I, I Andre, do... what a charming gala. Okay, sorry. It, it may done. have to become a thing on the show that we get you to sing some no. uh, show tune. I, just, I was trying to figure out why is why every time you said Andre, I was like, wait. There's like music playing in my head. All right. <laughs> so, so, Bobby, so, so the Mexican War precedent, right? Yeah. Clearly, these are not straight up courts martial. No, they're definitely not. They're concept right. they're they're vacuum filling ways to bring the law of war and internal discipline, right. two different things, to a combat zone where otherwise there wouldn't be any vehicles. And so for doing and so that. hard to say conclusively that it falls clearly into that second category of Winthrop Identified versus the third, it seems to blend, right, elements of both of them. Maybe maybe so. I mean it, it seems like a category three to me, but um but as you say, But there are no three, local courts, right? Right. I mean, so that, you know General Scott can't say, like, oh, let's bring you into the village and we're going to have the local magistrate. uh, That's the problem. Yeah. And it becomes a big problem in the Civil War. Exactly. And so all the officers, so many of the officers, and indeed uh, other personnel involved in the Mexican War, go on to be the more senior officers in the Civil War. And that's a a well-known dynamic. So this is... This is something that's well on their minds that when you have a situation either of law of war violations 
or illegal participation or irregular participation in hostilities, not to mention disorder in your own forces. Commissions may be perfectly appropriate tool to bring to bear. Of course, that was an expeditionary engagement right. in Mexico. Right, as opposed to on U.S. soil. As opposed to on U.S. soil. All right, soil. so fast forward to the War of Northern Aggression. Is that what you call it? No. <laughs> But as since I live in Texas, I got to start, you know, you know, putting them, putting them I don't, on. I grew up here, and I've never heard anybody other than jokingly refer to a northern aggression. How much do you want to bet that if we went into somewhere other than San Antonio, Austin, Houston, or Dallas, and went to see how the war is taught in in elementary? I'll and take middle that school. bet. Okay. I, like I said, I grew up here, and that was many years ago. <laughs> it wasn't taught that way then. So I went to high school in Maryland, where it is still sometimes referred to as the war between the states. Uh, well, you know, I, I, that doesn't surprise me. Look, Texas, yes, was part of the Confederacy and is some ways culturally connected to the South, but it's Western, too, and Texas is this unique Texas blend of South and West. I think that in some parts of the South, there's a there's a, there's a a stronger and different received memory. But, of course, you move— Really? You move, wait, wait. You think, you you don't, you think don't it's think the no, same you, in you, Texas as it is throughout the South? I don't think it's the, the same, but, like, I mean, there's, well, a, Confederate, there's a Confederate war memorial, right, on the on the grounds of the Texas that State doesn't Capitol. Dis- that doesn't there's disprove my point. There's a street in my called Confederate Street. Doesn't disprove my point. This is not Alabama. Yeah, let's put it to listeners. Is is Texas culturally distinct in that respect? And of course, everyone's going to have different experiences. Yeah, but who was the last to surrender? The last state, state or the last armed forces? The last state. Was well, both. John Bell Hood's forces. It wasn't. It was Kirby Smith, um, and the Army of Oh gosh, the Army of the Mississippi in Texas. In Texas. Well, right, because I mean there was some fighting that uh, went on here, but this was just all right. We were anyway. relatively remote, right? His, history. Texas aside, right. Um, it, so, it wasn't that Texas was a bunch of dead enders. So shockingly, the Civil War is really complicated, and it's really complicated for a couple of different reasons. Um, reason number one is a lot of the military tribunals that were convened were convened in situations where there really was no functioning civil government. So either um, on the front lines or in areas under military occupation. Um, Complicated for a second reason, because Congress really didn't do anything express, Bobby, to authorize um, the kinds of military commissions that Lincoln, Stanton, and their subordinates were convening under the under military authority. Right. Um, and so we get, you know, two major Supreme Court cases um, testing the, the Civil War military commissions. The first involves Clement Vallandigham. Um, although the Supreme Court actually misspells his name. It's Vallandigham. Yeah, right. Just um, like a... a- our, our colleague uh, uh, at Southwestern, Rachel Van Landingham. Rachel Van yep. So Rachel's dis- a direct descendant. Yeah, yep. distant relative, right? Yep. So um, Clement Vallandigham was tried by a military commission basically for publishing um, what the government b- believed was seditious material. Um, I think today we would have a problem with that. Well, in interesting context for this. So I mentioned a moment ago the distinction yep. between detention and prosecution. Yep. Amidst all the problematic assertions of military jurisdiction to prosecute civilians uh, that occurred in the North, um, there was also this vast amount of just straight up military detention. Yep. Um, and obviously you have you have an endless amount of, of prisoner of war detention of Confederate armed forces who were captured. But they also had what was what was often called in the 19th century and before prisoners of state. Yep. And prisoners of state were people just like it could have been Clement uh, Van Landingham. Uh, who were people who were thought to be, you know, maybe uh, talking people out of compliance with the draft or just, you know, too too rigorous in their criticism of the administration. And you could be detained without criminal charge 
and it got tangled up in really complex and interesting issues of habeas corpus. Well, I was going to say that's, that's where we're going. So, so part of what complicates the military commission piece of this is that habeas was suspended throughout large swaths of the country for much of the war, whether lawfully or just practically. Um, and the suspensions of habeas corpus create yet a further complication because. If you believe, as I do, that the purpose of a suspension is not to authorize detention, but is to displace judicial review, then basically there's nothing to stop what might otherwise be an ultra-virus military commission because there's no civilian court that should be in a position to review since at that time, Bobby, again, the only mechanism through which you could collapse, through which you could challenge military jurisdiction was a habeas petition. Right. And the, the habeas issue, of course, this is where it connects up with Amanda's book, which we just, you know, Indeed. have both enjoyed so much. Um, and there's there's a debate that Amanda's book really expresses a particular view on in, in a most compelling way about seeing suspension, the, the negation of access to the courts as at least a de facto affirmative grant of detention authority, you're, you're taking the position that it's not that, it's it's no more, no less than the denial of access to the courts. I think I'm basically between you guys on this. <laughs> I think it's, I think as Amanda documents, it's very much, very much understood in who in the hands of whoever's doing this suspension, whether it's a legislative body like Parliament or Congress or early on in the war, if it's Lincoln himself yep. just claiming the authority to do it, which is a whole separate issue. Um, they're doing it in order to make possible or to make more effective an attempt to affirmatively detain without having otherwise authority oh, to do listen, it. I and I know you, you don't I, I agree with that. that. Here's Listen, the, the easiest way to figure out which side you're on is whether you think that suspension is... So if you suspend habeas corpus for someone who otherwise you had no authority to detain, yeah. the question is, can they get damages after the fact? Well, so qu- let's, if we assume for the sake of argument that otherwise damages, you know, overcoming all but the see, endless but other... But see Bivens. But see all the other reasons why you still can't get damages. Um, no, I think the whole point is right. It's not affirmatively right. legal. And in theory, if there were post hoc punishments... Now, that which said... Mil- which Milligan got. Wh- what's that? Milligan got, got like... A, a teeny tiny amount of damages after the war. Well, sure. Well, of course, the court comes down and says this is all unlawful. So, yeah, yeah. but okay. okay. So to get to Milligan, so we've we've set the backdrop where there's lots of just straight up detention taking place, yep. but lot, lots of battlefield commissions that no one's really trying to challenge. Right, and and then you have a subset of scenarios, and that's where it gets most interesting. It's like the apex of complexity, where uh, you've got people who are not obviously subject to military commission jurisdiction, but they're being prosecuted in that setting. In the north. In the north. Okay, so Vallandigham is the sort of false, is the first false step, right? So Vallandigham is tried and convicted by a military commission. He tries to bring his case to the Supreme Court. Um, And in early 1864, the Supreme Court basically holds Bobby that it doesn't have jurisdiction to hear uh, Vallandigham's case. Um, And it's based on basically the mechanism that that Vallandigham tried to use, right? That basically they didn't have any appellate jurisdiction over a military commission, and they couldn't issue a writ of habeas corpus directly to a military commission because the military commission was not judicial. It's a sort of a Marbury-ish kind of vehicle This is Adich's point. Um, So Milligan... So Vallandigham is, I think, Ohio. I think it was like Cincinnati, somewhere around there. Um, Milligan is prosecuted right about the same time, maybe a little bit later. Um, And the claim against him is that he was part of a ring of Confederate sympathizers. The Sons of Liberty, they, of course, styled themselves. Um, In southern Indiana, which at the time was clearly a hotbed of pro-Confederate sympathy. 
um, that among other things was plotting to um, conduct a raid on a Union POW camp for Confederate POWs. Camp Morton. And and free these Confederate POWs. So this was a a small cell, you might say, (laughs) of of non-state actors who intended to uh, attack a military installation. You know, there's there's various ways in which you can kind of frame this through a terrorism lens. Um, Here's the key thing. There's never a claim that uh, that he that that Lambden Milligan is part of the Confederate Armed Forces or in any way under the direction and control of the Confederate States of America. But he's clearly sympathetic. He they were they were going to raid an armory and then they were going to try to free prisoners. Yep. I don't know if they're going to make a break for Cannon or what their what their plan was. But in any event, uh, it got smoked out and they all got detained. Yep. But not by uh, U.S. Marshals or local sheriffs. They got detained. By the military. By the military. Well, here's the problem. So, so there are two different problems here. First, the military believed that, listen, these guys were about to attack a military facility. Therefore, of course, they were subject to military jurisdiction. Second. Yeah, um, seems reasonable, at, at least at first blush. But second, if you are the lawyers in the Lincoln administration, and it's you know in the middle of 1864, Bobby, you are not excited about the prospect of having to try these guys before a jury of southern of southern Indianans. That's right. So this this is a recurring scenario which is is present in many of the historical examples where you have habeas suspensions and it's one reason why you often get habeas suspensions. Sometimes it's because you think, well, the people I'm concerned with, I do think they're guilty of crimes. I may even think I have good evidence of their crimes. But in a jury system with local juries, you're not you're worried about jury nullification, yep. and and they're certainly for very good reason worried about that in this instance. Okay, so um, I, I believe there were four defendants. Um, they're tried, they're convicted. Three of them are sentenced to hang. The fourth, I think, is sentenced to hard labor for the rest of the war. Um, Andrew Johnson, shortly after he becomes president, commutes the sentences. Um, but there's still this, you know, conviction hanging out over them. So unlike the Landingham, these guys now turn around and file for writs of habeas corpus, not directly in the Supreme Court, but in the Circuit Court for the Southern District of Indiana. Okay, so their lawyers paid attention and figured out how to do this. They right. took federal courts. Yes, um, indeed. And and as was often the case at this time in American history, Bobby, um, this might sound really odd to our, our listeners. Circuit courts at that time were two judges. Um, there were there was no such thing as a circuit judge. The circuit court was the local district judge and whoever the circuit justice was. Um, and one of the ways, one of the only ways the Supreme Court could exercise appellate jurisdiction in these cases was if the two judges divided. So what used to happen all the time is the judges would divide even when they didn't. Right, that, that they would just, to allow the Supreme Court to review the case, the justice would do whatever the heck the judge didn't do. Um, <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, it's just right, it's, it's, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the circuit court denies the writ, um, but they disagree, but there was disagreement about whether that was, you know, right. And the case goes to the Supreme Court. Um, it's argued, now here's where things get really interesting. It's argued, Bobby, in March of 1866. Okay, so this is pretty. This is critical. It's past the days of exigency, right? I mean, it's it's eleven months after Lee surrenders. Okay, um, which you know I think a lot of folks point to as giving the Supreme Court perhaps more gumption. I, just no question, right? I think no question. So one month later, the court decides the case, um, and the court unanimously holds that the military commission of Milligan and his Confederates um, was unlawful, but they divide as to why. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, how, we're, how, so should, we, should I start with Davis? Yeah, let's go. Let's go through the majority, and uh, of course, so Milligan's saying, "Look, I have a constitutional right to a jury." Yep. 
And that's that's the constitutional violation. And 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 there and there's no question from Justice Davis's majority opinion that the jury trial right is what's doing the work here. Right. Um, now the government argued that Milligan was not a civilian. Right, that Milligan was, as you say, a, a hostile member of a non-state actor. I mean, they didn't quite use the, yeah. the modern lingo. Yeah, if, if they had our experience, yes. I think a clever litigator would have said that the Sons of Liberty were a non-state actor terrorist organization that was an associated, associated force of, of the, the Confederate, Confederate Army. That it, was in, that it joined it in hostilities yep. against the yep, United totally. States. But they didn't have those concepts in the court categorically did not treat him right. as a combatant, whether lawful or unlawful. Yep. He was treated as a straight-up civilian. Which is, inter- which is going to matter when we get to Kieran. It's going to matter a lot. Okay. So even though the government argued that Milligan was not a civilian, the Supreme Court says he is. Um, and the Supreme Court says, well, the majority says, in these circumstances, um, you cannot prosecute a civilian in a military commission Absent martial law. That is to say, so long as the civilian courts, Bobby, are open and unobstructed, meaning so long as there is a, you know, existing criminal forum, never mind that I think, if, you know, if they had to d- consider this case in the heat of the moment, they might not have concluded that the Southern District of Indiana was unobstructed. Well, there were definitely moments. Indiana was not immune from raiding. Yeah. There were there were definitely some combat engagements that occurred there. By the time this has been decided, all that's history. And at the time of the events that were underlying this, that was it was not the most exigent moment for Southern Indiana. Right. It gave the court enough space, if it wanted to, to portray the the venue of all these events as having happened in a place where everything's kind of normal. Much like much like the Hawaii case Hawaii in World War II. Hawaii in World War II, exactly. So we'll, we'll get we'll to get that. to Duncan versus Kahanamoku. All right. In con- and in all of it, in contrast to say occupied New Orleans during the war, right. where Union forces were running the town and they were in the position of post World War II U.S. Sector in Germany. Provost courts. Provost courts. All right. So the Davis majority opinion basically stands for the proposition that it is never going to be constitutional to try civilians, at least, and perhaps anybody. I mean, there's language, Bobby, in there that could be read even more capaciously, so long as there is an available civilian forum. Um, Chief Justice Chase, um, writing on behalf of four justices, writes a concurring opinion that is way too undertaught. Um, right, because the Davis's opinion is full of like Anthony Kennedy flowery. Yeah. Okay, I language. feel duty bound to read some Please. of the famous lines. The Constitution of the United States is a law for rulers and people, equally in war and in peace. It covers with the shield of its protection all classes of men at all times and under all circumstances. No doc, yeah, blah blah blah. It goes on and on. It's full of quotable language. My, my favorite. I don't part, mean to belittle right. it. It's actually yeah. there's great language here. And, and my favorite part is is where he basically tries to say, you know, there might be wicked rulers who might try to abuse this authority. <laughs> nah, never gonna happen. But it's never gonna happen. Well, because he doesn't he doesn't mean to talk about Lincoln because Lincoln was like his best friend and the guy who appointed him to the court. No, no, uh, he was anticipating. Right. So the Chase concurrence, and and we should say it is not that common in 1866 to have a concurring opinion at all, let alone a four-justice concurrence in a major case. With the chief on the wrong with side. With the chief on the wrong side. Um, so Chase's concurrence says, listen, I am with you that Milligan's military commission was unlawful, but I have a much narrower objection, which is that it wasn't authorized by Congress. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that and that all this big, fancy stuff about, you know, civilian courts open and obstructed, but I don't know that I would agree with that if Congress had authorized these trials. So basically, and this anticipates Hamdan, yeah. the dissent in Milligan is basically saying, Not like, look, concurrence. It, 
I'm sorry. You're, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's on this issue a break, but it's ultimately concurrent in, in the outcome. So it's basically saying, look, it's a separation of powers problem. Yep. The executive's done something here. Uh, it's category three. It's category three. Exactly. To whereas tie whereas the majority sees it purely as an individual rights problem. Exactly. And, and, and so implicitly, Chase is saying, like, that eh, would not be an individual rights problem. Congress is free to make that inroad on the, the jury trial right and the other rights, of course, that are carried with that. Okay. Um, now, that is, with one exception, that's basically the last, you know, the, the the only other precedent from the Civil War that we should probably say a quick word about is the Lincoln assassination right. trial. Right, yeah. Um, because that comes back into into play in, in certain concurring opinions in the Guantanamo cases. So so um, after after the conspirators were rounded up, yep. um, the surviving conspirators, uh, they were put before a military commission yep. and executed real quickly. Not all of them, but... Yeah, no, they were, were... they all? Were they Did, all executed? Mary Surratt was executed. No, she was. Yeah. I think... Th- one, uh, one, one the of them, doctor? Yeah, the doctor. Um, well, Mudd wasn't tried by that commission. Mudd was tried by a different commission. All right. But one or the other, yes. they had rapid-fire commissions. Yes. Now, there, you probably know this better than I do. Was there any serious litigation like trying to derail that train yes. before it reached the oh, station? Yes, yes, yes. So yes. what happened there? Um, basically, uh, so Marty Lederman tells this story in, in amazingly rich detail in his fantastic Columbia Law Review article, The Law of the Lincoln Assassination. Um, and there was this effort uh, right after the commission was concluded to get a writ of habeas corpus. They actually found a judge in D.C. who was willing to issue a writ, and then Johnson basically suspended it. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's all uh, But that's ugly. the whole point of suspension, right, is to derail these legal processes of course, but as, that, as a state of emergency that, type I think, of situation. But I think that creates some deep equivocalness. Um, as to the value of this as a precedent, right? And and especially when you consider circumstances, more modern circumstances, where there's no suspension. Right. All uh, right. So um, I think we can fast forward to World War II because there's no yeah. real military commission uh, developments. Um, I mean, there's a lot, we should know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the wars with Native American tribes yep. that followed. Right, the but, Dakota war crimes right. trials. But I don't think we get anything in at the level of ex parte Milligan or no. what we're coming to, which there's, is there's, Kieran. Right, there's no real sort of further development of Supreme Court precedent with regard to what the Constitution permits. Yeah. So, so Milligan leaves open this question, right, of, you know, okay, so a civilian being tried by a military commission where the civilian courts were open and where Congress hadn't authorized it, Everyone agrees. No military commission. Right. But what, what else? But right. What about other situ- situations? Do you want to say something about Hawaii first, and then we'll move on to the harder case, the case that did present, at least partially, the scenario you just described? So Hawaii is complicated because Hawaii is placed under martial law not long after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Talk about martial law in the abstract and how it relates to the things we've been talking about. Well, so we martial, have not right. been talking martial law, really. Yeah. Well, provost courts. Provost, I mean, so martial law is basically um, whether by, how do I say this, whether by practical necessity or legal decree, um, when the military basically takes over for the civilian government. Right. Um, there's no provision in the Constitution that expressly authorizes martial law, but, you know, sort of there's this whole necessity understanding. Right. So when it's a necessity scenario, then it's vacuum filling. And then you could think of provost courts as a nice way of saying, right. oh, it's martial law. But but, but, because, but law. because somebody's got to prosecute the thieves and right. the murderers exactly and right. the arsonists, And that's Hawaii. So, so under the terms of the Hawaii Organic Act, because let's remember, at the time of Pearl Territory. Harbor, Hawaii is still a federal territory. Um, martial law is declared in Hawaii. Hawaii is basically placed under military control for most of the war. Um, and that includes not law of war military commissions a la Kieran, but provost courts. Right. 
Oh, by the way, so insofar as someone feels they have a constitutional rights objection, when they're in a territory, a uh, little trivia point, uh, oh. first major Supreme Court case to very loudly say constitutional rights extend into those territories, Dred Scott, right? When when Ta- when Tawny talked about uh, due process due process rights for yeah although Tawny also draws a preposterous and long since decredited distinction between territories that were part of the U S when the Constitution was mm-hmm. ratified and newly added right territories. and newly because he had a mission there <sighs> all right um but by the way just while we're plugging books if you want to read a stunningly detailed book about the Hawaiian experience during World War II. Um, Harry Scheiber and Jane Scheiber have a book called Bayonets in Paradise, Ooh, um, which is title. just a, a fantastically rich um, history of military government in Hawaii. For the 100th episode, we need a road trip to Hawaii to explore the various sites of National Have you been to Pearl Harbor? Legal. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I've been the, to Arizona the Arizona Memorial yeah, is really just, cool. oh, yeah. It's, so Karen, Karen and I went to Hawaii couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just wanted to go to the Big Island, Maui, and Lanai. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, we're doing one night in Oahu so I can go to Pearl Harbor. It's, Pearl Harbor's amazing. Yes. Oh, all of Hawaii is. True. But, but the, anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, so the Hawaii experience, so the Supreme Court in 1946, in a case called Duncan versus Kahanamoku, um, basically holds that by a point, I don't remember the exact date, but pretty early on, when it became clear to military authorities that Hawaii was no longer under a serious threat of invasion, um, the government lost the authority, Bobby, under the statute, right? That is to say, this is not a big constitutional holding. Right. To continue to exercise military jurisdiction over ordinary offenses in Hawaii. Um, to, but Duncan versus Kahanamoku, you know, the concurring opinions have some big constitutional discussions. The majority opinion is pretty narrow, and it's really a construction of the Hawaii Organic Act as not authorizing martial law courts and martial law justice once the security situation in Hawaii had abated. Okay, so that's not nearly as on point for us then as what happens when oh, the a saboteurs. group of, of Two groups. saboteurs. Right, right. So in Florida Operation and Pastorius. New York. So let's talk about what happened here. The, the famous case of Ex parte Oh, Karen. my gosh. Um, you well, can't make up the facts of it's this re- It's really remarkable stuff. Um, Okay, the basic idea is the Germans have a notion of sending a a submarine over and planting a group of people who can blend in in the United States, either because they used to live there, maybe they're even dual citizens, or even, you know, whatever the case may be. But people can speak English well and blend in, give them a bunch of money, civilian clothes. Uh, They trained them up. These people, I believe they were German Marines. They They were, as a formal matter, organizationally brought within German armed forces, even though most of them, if not all of them, certainly weren't originally soldiers when they were recruited into this scheme. But they got trained up within the German military, sent in a German submarine. One group dropped off somewhere in Florida. Another group dropped in Long Island. And and Steve, I'm sure you know this, the the, the sort of kind of semi-comic events that unfolded. So they, they hit the beach. They they come ashore wearing their uniforms because you know what if they're what if everybody's waiting for them there and they're caught right away might as well be POWs, but once they're ashore they quickly began changing into their civilian clothes and they're digging a hole on the beach to bury the the packet of, of uniforms when up comes the uh, Lieutenant night- Cullen was that, was that his name uh, so. the night watchman comes strolling up uh, what what are you boys doing out here so late what's going on well but but what's remarkable about this is the the U S Coast Guard which was responsible for patrolling the southern shore of Long Island, which, by the way, Bobby, is long, mm-hmm. um, had, like, two guys 
like covering the whole southern short of the island, and they still found these guys. Yeah, it is kind of they, they lucked right on top of them. But you're this one sleepy night watchman, and here's all these guys. Oh, there's four guys speaking German. So there's a, there's a question like, what's going to happen? Are they are they going to kill him? Are they going to knock him out? Uh, they bribe him. They give him a little cash. They, uh, you know, hey, you didn't, you, didn't see you didn't see a thing. And the guy takes the cash. Uh, as I understand, he goes back to his hut or whatever, and, and places a call and says, I, "There's some guys down the beach, probably not processing quite what it no, is." No, 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 no. And, and and the call and the report gets like filed away. On the it's way. like ah, so whatever. Some, yeah, somebody's doing right. something on the beach. Um. So part of the backstory here is that one of the eight saboteurs, um saw this as his way to escape to America. Exactly. He, um, he was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to get out of here. And, and and basically his plan all along was to turn in, was to use the sort of knowledge of the plot to win his freedom. And um, he'll, he'll be a hero. I'll be, I'll be a hero. They'll throw parades yeah. for me. Uh, it turns out it's kind of hard, and, and it makes sense, I guess, in the circumstance. Actually kind of hard to convince people that you are what you say you are in that circumstance. He starts contacting the FBI, I believe, from the uh, what's the hotel on Connecticut in Washington? Um, the Mayflower. The Mayflower. Yep. From the Mayflower, <laughs> right? And I think on one of the floors in the Mayflower Hotel, there's, to this a, day, there's a plaque, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the the so he calls the FBI and he says, "Hi, my friends and I are German, you know, our German <laughs> soldiers here on a mission of industrial sabotage. Yes. We'd like to turn ourselves in." And the FBI is like, "The penalty for crank calls, yeah, you know, like, United click, States, click. And so then they try again, and so it takes like. Three different contacts before the FBI finally, you know, like, look, we buried some weapons over there on Long Island. Yeah, and, and so finally they do cotton on to this and realize, and, oh, my God, we're really lucky that this guy tipped us off. Well, so, so this becomes part of the story, right, which is, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, is kind of nervous about it getting out that the FBI, like, got totally duped here. Well, um, I... I not yeah, I mean, that the FBI did not take serious that, that the FBI would only knew about this because these guys turned themselves so in. So I, I agree very much. There's a little element of embarrassment, but the larger issue is even if it wasn't so much like, oh, we look like bumbling idiots, it's more that, damn, this this could be a problem if they do this a lot. We need the Germans to think that we are so on top of right. our game here that there's not much point doing it. Right, don't this. even try this again. So we, we don't want them knowing how, how we didn't figure this out on our own. So the plan was for the eight saboteurs to rendezvous in Cincinnati. Back to Cincinnati. Um, all and when they, and when they all rendezvous, the FBI is there waiting for them and arrest them. Now, at this point, you might think that the answer would be to try them in a civilian court. You could, um, but but what would then come out? Well, so presumably, what would come out is one the um, stunning inadequacy of the United States coastal defenses, a la the spring of 1942, and two the um, not exactly competence of the FBI in detecting these plots, even when they are told about them by the plotters. Right. So it it it's I'm I'm reluctant to bear down the FBI hard on this because of course they have, they don't really have the means of detecting without somebody coming forward. Unless these people get caught on the beach, and that wasn't the FBI's fault, but I do think it was it was clearly perceived as a strategically significant moment. We want that we want the Germans to think that this is kind of fruitless. Don't bother with this, and and for that reason, the Roosevelt administration was determined not to have a proceeding in which it would be easy for the precise details of the, of the capture to come out in public. And they thought they had an alternative. They thought they had an alternative in the form of military commissions. Um, and in very short order, a, uh, a relatively peremptory and brief order 
from the Commander-in-Chief, uh, was drawn up to direct the establishment of a commission, directing the appointment of counsel, directing the quick convening of a trial, sort of a major Andre-type framework. That's what they had in mind, that these, these were service members who got out of their uniforms, went behind the lines to conduct sabotage, and see Major Andre, you can, of course, execute people once you've had a fact-finding hearing, and you can do it in a military setting. That was their perception. Well, and also, but the, the, the FDR proclamation also purported to say, and no judicial review. Um, right, exactly. Which, which becomes a big part of the controversy. Indeed. So um, a distinguishing factor with Major Andre, Major Andre was, of course, there was no full sort of fledged United States at that time. It was in the midst of the revolution. But the, at least one of these guys, I forget the precise numbers, but at least one of them definitely was a citizen. Yep. One definitely was, and I think one had a sort of contested claim to citizenship. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not just foreigners coming behind lines. Right. To some extent, it, it, it presents a Milligan-type situation. Indeed. And thus the great question— is this more like Major Andre? Is it more like Milligan? Or is it different from both? And here's where the Supreme Court comes into play an interesting role. So the Supreme Court actually, um, this is all happening in, the, in July of 1942. And the Supreme Court, through Chief Justice Stone, with some encouragement, I think, from Justice Frankfurter, decides to convene an extraordinary session, a special term, um, something it really yeah. doesn't do very often. Right. Um, and while, and basically, the military commission is going on at the Justice Department um, at the same time as the Supreme Court is taking briefs from the parties and hours and hours of argument about the jurisdiction of the military commission to try the saboteurs. You gotta, you gotta tell our listeners the the dramatic sequencing of the result. In the opinion uh, and how that all went this, down. This, this, this is not a good, remarkable. Not a happy precedent, as Justice Frankfurter will later will later say. So um, go down. So basically, the after a whole bunch of wrangling, where the court basically tells the lawyers for the saboteurs um, to file first in the lower courts that they can then say, you know, we're exercising appellate jurisdiction. The court issues a one paragraph per curium opinion, saying we find no jurisdictional objection. Um, with the military commission, proceed. Um, and that an opinion, uh, exp- you know, setting out our views will be forthcoming. And in the meantime? In the meantime, the commission convicts the guys, sentences, I think, what, all sentences all of them to death, although I think the two citizens guys get, like, somewhat commuted. Yeah, I forget exactly how that went down. But suffice to say, the guy who turned them all in, yeah. he did not get any heroes welcome. No. He was prosecuted along with the rest. Um, and then after, I think, the six of the eight saboteurs have been executed, um, well after the court issues this opinion in October of 1942, so, so some months later, with the, re- the execution, which which I think was a, an object lesson for that. So part of the problem, as some of the internal memos that came out later suggest, is you can't really have doubts, right? That that you know, yeah. you you can't then write a concurrence or a dissent after you voted, you know, back in July to right. say this is fine. All right, so th- so there's there's this procedural irregularity, but. Uh, I guess it doesn't really go to the heart of the issue. So we'll come back to the heart. Well, actually, I'm not sure that's true. Because I think for the justice, for some of the justices who participated, I think the procedural irregularity was a big part of why the precedent cast a shadow. So that's the thing to debate, right? And this is a little bit like Reynolds versus United States, the uh, the, didn't follow that much longer, you know, a decade later, where there's procedural problems that, at least formally speaking, are separate from the core merits issues um, that are at stake. And for some people, they're not separable. That's sort of an original sin that taints the right. merits rulings. Right. I, I don't view 
Karen that way. I think that you know you could you could rationally hold the view that the court got the the actual reasoning was entirely correct, but the procedure was entirely wrong. It shouldn't have been fair enough. That all, way. all I'll say is there are folks who disagree with you, including Justice Scalia, who pointed to the procedural irregularities in his Hamdi dissent to say that it was quote not this court's finest hour. True. Okay, so let's talk about so the Stone so Chief Justice Stone writes the unanimous majority opinion for I think an eight nothing court. One of the justices I think recused because his son was in the military or something like that. Um, and I think, Bobby, it's safe to say that there are two major holdings, um, eh, three major holdings in Chief Justice Stone's like 43-page majority opinion. Okay. Um, major holding number one is that unlike in Milligan, Congress had authorized the military commissions here at issue. So picking up not on the majority opinion right. from Milligan, but, on Chase's, but on Chase's concurrence, Stone starts from the proposition that what Roosevelt ordered was consistent with what Congress had authorized. So that he was acting under delegated authority? And for purposes of that holding, Stone relies on what was then Article 15 of the 1916 Articles of War, today's Article 21 of the UCMJ. Right, so a federal statute. Um, which I want to read to everyone. And as I'm reading it, listen carefully for the words that expressly authorize military commissions. <laughs> the provisions of this chapter conferring jurisdiction upon courts martial do not deprive military commissions, provost courts, or other military tribunals of concurrent jurisdiction with respect to offenders or offenses that by statute or by the law of war may be tried by military commissions, provost courts, or other military tribunals. Okay. That is the language of Article 15, circa 1942. Now, are you suggesting that there's a an inadequate degree of express authorization for I, this year? I'm suggesting— that actually sounds okay to me. Oh, see, but here's the problem. This provision reads like a reservation, right? That, sure. That, that the jurisdiction conferred upon courts martial— right. doesn't eliminate doesn't the other. —doesn't displace whatever jurisdiction previously existed— that's right, because it had always been a common law. common law. This is my problem. I don't see Article 15 as affirmatively authorizing military commissions. I see Article 15 as basically saying whatever authority exists for them, the courts martial authority provided by the Articles of War doesn't displace it. So it's, an, it's a Category 2 steel seizure scenario. That, yes. At worst. Yes. But I think it's Category 2, and Stone says it's Category 1. Um, Justice Stevens, writing for the majority in Hamdan, will characterize this as a controversial characterization of Article 15, although the one thing I think we can agree on is Congress ratifies it um, in 1950 when it codifies Article 15 as part of the UCM. Rightly so, right. Okay, okay so, so, so it so, kind of, but it puts to bed the Justice Ch Chief Justice Chase issue. Because here, you know, whether you think Congress really meant to authorize military commissions or not, uh, Stone says they did. Yep. Um, okay, so big hole number one, there is statutory authority for military commissions. Bobby, statutory authority to wit for offenders or offenses that by statute or by the law of war may be tried by military commissions. So it raises the question, is the is are the saboteurs being right. prosecuted for either a statutory right. offense or a law of war offense? So big holding number two is the offenses these saboteurs are charged with are in fact violations of the laws of war, um, which is itself controversial because there's this whole question about like, is, you know, is sabotage a war crime? I think, um, was it uh, Professor Baxter writes an article in 1952 in the British Yearbook of International Law where he says that really wasn't a violation of the laws of war, but the court says it is. Yeah, there's always been this fuzziness about the difference between 
a, a, a straight up easily identified war crime like targeting a civilian yeah. or a civilian object. You can make the argument that there's nothing wrong with the targets of the planned sabotage because they were going after war supporting industries, that those were legitimate milita- military objectives. Mm-hmm. And, any, and any harm to civilian workers would have been collateral damage to those military objectives. Um, the, this gets to something that will become a big deal after 9-11. On the other hand, they were out of uniform. And there's no question that they had no no privilege to be doing what they're doing by fighting out of uniform in that way, if that's what they were doing. Uh, does that make it a war crime to do it, or does it just mean that they were amenable to prosecution for arson, uh, murder, etc., under ordinary domestic law in a way that a uniformed soldier wouldn't be? They're certainly amenable to prosecution, whether it was a war crime as such, then gets tangled up in claims about, well, historically speaking, spies and saboteurs lurking behind enemy lines, like Major Andre for his espionage, can be executed, right? So uh, either way, the court blesses the uh, the charges and the jurisdiction in Kieran. Now, two big issues that are looming there, um, well, one super big issue, how does this square with Milligan? So that's that's the third big holding. So big holding number three, and I actually think this is the part of Kieran that doesn't get enough attention, is this discussion of jury trial. Um, because if we go back to Milligan for a second, the yes, it's true Congress hadn't authorized it, but the violation of the Constitution that the majority relied upon was the deprivation of Milligan's right to jury trial. Exactly so. The majority, the majority, the court in Kieran distinguishes Milligan by holding that the jury trial clauses, plural, yep. have an atextual exception mm-hmm. for, quote, offenses committed by enemy belligerents against the laws of war, unquote. Right. Period. It, it, is, it assimilates them into the clearer, more textually based jurisdiction of courts martial over America's own service members. Yeah, although, again, remember, the textual exception for service members is cases arising in the land or naval forces, regardless yeah. of their substance. No, I know that's what I'm saying. So, atextually, they bring in, they expand the scope, or yes. they read in an exception. And you might say, look, it's, got, it's really got nothing to do with the written exception for, for our service members. But there's it's parallel- recognizing an implied exception. Well, but, this, but what I argued in the Georgetown article is there's a deep parallel between the structure of the court's approach to court-martial jurisdiction, which is Congress has Article I power under the Make Rules Clause, and there's a jury trial exception. That's how we get courts-martial. Mm-hmm. And Kieran, where the court says Congress has Article I power under the Define and Punish Clause, and jury trial exception. And the reason why that matters is to figure out what other cases not covered by Kieran might matter. Right. See Gitmo. All right. Um, so Kieran, Bobby, I think, Controversially or not, and I think we'll just we'll agree to disagree on this. Yeah. Um, sets an unambiguous precedent that if the military is trying enemy belligerents for violations of the laws of war, it is perfectly constitutional for them to do so in a military commission, regardless of where the crime was committed and regardless of the status of the civilian right. courts. Is it fair to boil it down and say that the difference for Kieran and the it, well for Kieran's? Yeah. American citizen, at least, from within that subset. And Lambda Milligan was the organizational affiliation. These guys were there under the direction and control of the enemy military with whom we were engaged in a war. Milligan was acting in sympathy with the enemy and support of the enemy, material support, but was not actually under their direction and control, was an independent actor. I think that has to be doing almost all the work because it's not citizenship, right? Because the court in Kieran has to write an opinion that applies to citizens as well as non-citizens. And it's not, you know, and I mean, and the, the congressional authorization obviously 
obviously is is a trigger, but it doesn't settle the matter. Right. Now, there's some other important language that will loom large later in this. There's some dicta about the alternative the government had that they could have simply detained these guys without actually prosecuting them. That being members of the German armed forces, it was the government's choice if there was a war crime charge to be made, they could choose to pursue that more draconian path. But here, here's some key language. Um, da, 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 da. Actually, I'm not going to read the whole language. It's a long <laughs> quote. Suffice to say that there's language that says that if you're an enemy combatant, whether citizen or not, you're subject to being detained for the duration of hostilities. If you're an unprivileged combatant, if you're a combatant, but you've doffed your uniform or what have you, right. well, you're now additionally exposed to the possibility of a prosecution, including if you, vi- if you violate a war crime violation. Right. And that can be before a military court. It doesn't have to be a civil Exactly court. so. All right. So Kieran... Um, so, so let me say sort of two, two closing things about Kieran to tee up what happens later, right? Um, so closing number one, whatever you think of Kieran, it is unambiguous about the precedent it sets. Yep. Um, there is absolutely no question that a fair reading of Kieran is that the U.S. government has the power to try by military commission enemy belligerents who commit violations of the international laws of war, full stop. Right. Um, and, and this is only cemented by Congress in 1950 when it codifies the Articles of War as the Uniform Code of Military Justice, taking the language of Article 15 and adopting it fully in light of Kieran as Article 21 of the new UCMJ. So that authority, Bobby, is still on the books. Um, What you might call a Chapter 47 military commission, still out there for violations of the laws of war by enemy belligerents. Clear thing number one. Takeaway point number two, um, Kieran says nothing about whether it goes any farther. Right. right, that Kieran says nothing about whether it is thereby establishing the limits of military jurisdiction right. as a constitutional matter, or whether it's thereby only saying this is permissible, but lots of other stuff might be too. Indeed, uh, in talking about Milligan, Kieran goes out of its way to characterize Milligan as a rule for that particular fact pattern, and it's only fair to say that Kieran, therefore itself, should be and is read as a rule for that particular fact right. pattern, and there can be. Other fuzzier fact patterns that maybe fall between so the Milligan so there, so there's and there's a whole fight. Precedence. There's a whole fight in the literature about whether Milligan is the rule and Kieran is the exception, or whether Kieran is the rule and Milligan is the exception. And I think what you just said is much better, which is they're both specific to those cases. And, and I certainly believe that that is the descriptively accurate thing to say, and that it's 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 kind of formalistic and it creates a sense of sort of objective reality to right. where's the real law right. lurking in reason. It you have two precedents. Yep. Okay. Now, well, so you have two precedents, although then there become a whole bunch of other precedents under Kieran, mm-hmm. um, right? That is to say, um, unlike Milligan, which is really a one-off, you get dozens and dozens and dozens of U.S. war crimes prosecutions during and after World War II under the Kieran precedent, um, two of which make their way back to the Supreme Court. Now, how many of those, though, involved any citizens? None. Yeah, okay. No, no, no. Right. I, well, uh, wait, one. Um Kolpaw, right? Kolpaw versus oh, okay. Looney, the 10th Circuit case, yeah. 1956. But that's not. But what we don't have is another citizen accused of being part of the enemy forces engaged in a war crime. Right. Right. We that's have right. we have citizens we have who kind of get right. You have you have provost court type yep. jurisdiction over ci- citizens, and then you have war crime prosecutions of the actual straight up foreign members of the enemy armed forces. Right. And, then, and and some of the questions become well, listen, even if the military commission has jurisdiction, are there any other claims that the that the litigants can raise in those cases? And that's where you get Yamashita in. 1946, and Eisentrager in 1950, where the Supreme Court basically says no, right? That that the, the, the only question for us is whether the military commission exercised jurisdiction. So long as it did so, as long as its jurisdiction was was valid, we're done. We're out of this business. Bye. Okay. Um, 
their things basically stood, right, on 9-11. Um, And when the Bush administration sits down to try to figure out what to do with all of the, you know, terrorism suspects who it knows it's about to be encountering on battlefields in Afghanistan and elsewhere, um, the relevant precedent they find is Kieran. That's right. And and it's important to underscore something that's so easily lost if you didn't sort of live through these events as they unfolded. It's it's really clear both from the, the memoirs and statements of people involved in planning the policy and just you know, everything we know about um, what it looked like from September 2001's perspective, there was certainly an anticipation that by using the military, the CIA, and liaison services to get our hands much more aggressively on al-Qaeda members wherever they may be found, that we were going to come into custody of, of a substantial number of people. And, and of course, that also a lot of Taliban fighters were going to come into somebody's custody, Northern Alliance, yeah. maybe some ours. Um, there was not some grand plan to have Guantanamo or any other location as the long-term pure military detention camp. No, no, trials. The idea was we're going to get these people. And we're trying. Yeah, they, they, they might be in military custody as an interim step. But the idea is we're going to quickly get to the most rapid form of likely uh, positive outcomes for the prosecution. And so the rationale was, looking back on the precedents, Kieran and, and all these subsequent cases, let's do that. We're saying it's an armed conflict. We've got people who are all categorically, at least that was the position, right? Categorically like the saboteurs in yep. that they're out of uniform or otherwise not privileged. As a status matter. As a status matter. And so you're free to prosecute them for war crimes. If the military commissions seem to work expeditiously. The Supreme Court had blessed it. And there were there were policy legal policymakers and counterterrorism policymakers that in the fall of 2001 looked at all that and thought, all right, well, let's use military commissions. So there's a November 6th OLC memo, um, which I assigned to my students because I think it's a fantastic memo. And this leads to the November 13th military order, the controversial... Military order number one. Right. Um, and, you know, I have to say, Bobby, I actually think, I, I push my students to see this. The OLC memo does not, in my view, misread the precedents. No. Um, and the military order, other than perhaps the, 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 the provision that purports to displace judicial review, does not misread the precedents. The problem is not what happened in November. The problem is how it was operationalized thereafter. I, I, I agree with that. I would add one gloss I'm sure you'll agree with. The precedents were exactly as we've described them. And, and frankly, if you knew nothing about anything else and just heard this description, you might think, so what's the problem going to be? Um, there had been great cultural change. Yes. You'd had the entire rights revolution and yep. sort of uh, dramatic shift towards much more capacious understandings of how much process including, is necessary, including in the military. And I think this That's is exactly right. And the one, and so the only the the omission from the OLC memo that I think is telling in retrospect is, you know, at the time Kieran is decided. Service members have no more protection. And indeed, one of the things Stone says in his opinion is part of why we think it's appropriate to try enemy belligerents by military commission is because surely they're not entitled to greater protection than our own service members. Right. Military justice in the court martial system as they, what's the old joke about? Military justice is to justice as military music is to music. Which is actually, it's kind of funny because, you know, every military band I've ever heard is amazing. Well, and, it, right, and so it, <laughs> it, and that tracks the current status where court martial process is, generally speaking, is roughly comparable to federal court so uh, the, so this is process, this, but that wasn't how it used to be. And, and I've been, I am, I am, I am on my soapbox when I say everybody, I mean, scholars, government lawyers, and the courts fails to appreciate how the modernization and civilianization of the ordinary military justice system ought to inform 
our contemporary discussion of other forms of military justice. Right, and even if it even if it shouldn't as a normative matter, as a descriptive or predictive matter about what the public reception, and yep. this, this means how stable is this going to be, not as a matter of what you can sustain as a formal legal matter, but what's going to fly in, in the larger climate of political and diplomatic reactions, it in retrospect is obvious and, and perhaps should have been a little bit more predictable that going to the dr- relatively now draconian looking skimpy procedures of the World War II yep. uh, commissions was not going to look as good. With no appellate review. Right. Especially if you throw in that like we're going to try to keep the courts out of it again. Um, but that but also just like the, the, the minimal degrees of evidentiary rules, yep. like anything kind of comes in for whatever right. weight it will bear. The, the, nothing in the two thousand nothing in the November sixth OLC memo, in my view, misstates precedent. Oh, exactly right. But the but the memo repeatedly fails to appreciate how times had changed. It's good lawyering, not good counseling, if you can draw that distinction. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, what happens next? Here, here, the the central logistical problem that the government then encounters is that even though it has plenty of detainees, it can't tie Bobby almost any of them to clear international war crimes because of the circumstances in which these guys were captured, because of the nature of the evidence against them. It has you know enough evidence, at least in many of these cases, to justify detention. On the theory that they are part of right. these, you know, non-state actor associated right. forces, but to prove beyond a reasonable doubt something that's clearly prosecutable, like as attack on a civilian right. object or Atta- a civilian, or a crime against humanity, right, or a war crime. Right. So, so if you've got KSM, now you've got a plausible set of charges. If you've got uh, John Doe, foot soldier, Al-Qaeda member, uh, not so much. Salim Hamdan, right? So, right. So, the, so I think what the so. Folks in the Defense Department, whether con- whether knowingly or not, assume you know took the position that all of these precedents, as outlined in the OLC memo, meant that they could also try offenses that they believed were war crimes, even if they were not recognized as international war crimes. And that becomes, I think, these the original sin from a jurisdictional perspective is the is the view that Kieran necessarily, as opposed to through extension, maps onto offenses that are not clearly established international war crimes. And, and the, the lawyering problem there was failure, what I think probably was a failure to put the client, the president, yeah. uh, adequately on notice of how much this is subject to not working out, yep. how likely, how possible it was the courts would say, you know, material support and conspiracy in the, this setting yep. May not actually work, and therefore we might end up getting tangled up in litigation that maybe could for go on years. for years. Okay. Not sure this actually will be the quick path to justice that you want, and that's what happened. It is what happened. All right, so let me let's do Hamdan pretty quickly because I yeah. think we're I don't yeah. want to belabor the point. Um, so Hamdan uh, is the first person who is charged under the military commissions. I think deliberately they picked someone who was not their alpha. You know, no, right, because you don't want to test drive it and have, have the wheels come off right. as they do. Much like the Yugoslavian War Crimes Tribunal's first defendant is Disko Tadic, right, who's a pretty sort of middle-level figure. Um, Hamdan is charged with conspiracy, just as a standalone offense. Um, Hamdan brings a pretrial habeas petition that first gets caught up in the wrangling over whether there's even habeas jurisdiction over Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. After the Razul case is decided in 2004, the Supreme Court says, yes, there's habeas jurisdiction over Guantanamo. His petition goes forward. Um, in November 2004, district court says this is illegal um, because this doesn't look like the military commissions we had during World War II. In July of 2005, the D.C. Circuit, on a panel that included then-Circuit Judge John Roberts, reverses and says this is all fine. And the Supreme Court grants cert in December of 2005. 
Um, and here's argument um, October, November, but fall 2005. Um, here's argument in January 2006. There's a lot of wrangling about Congress's effort to take away jurisdiction. Right, we're going to gloss on. over the statutory. We'll gloss over that. Um, and what the Supreme Court ultimately holds in Hamdan in June of 2006 for a 5-3 majority is that there were three different problems with the military commissions in Hamdan's case. Um, problem number one was the extent to which they departed from the rules for courts martial, the procedural and evidentiary rules, without the necessary certification by the president that following the normal court martial rules was impracticable. Right. So now let's pause on that one, because I always thought that was maybe one of the weaker parts of the opinion. Um, obviously, you could have chosen, the opinion easily could have said, Although we may may not have it in so many words, it is obvious from the fact that President Bush did, in fact, yep. issue the order calling for these particular departures uh, in this particular way. Obviously, he must have so found, yep. and we are not going to second guess that as a matter of deference. It's a fair critique. I think I think it was. But they didn't treat it as second guessing whether it was necessary. They treated it as he failed to sort of check took the, box, the box exactly. Right. Which is, I think. That was an early and rather shocking sign of judicial independence in a national yeah, yeah. security case to not give that little measure of, of... True, but it gave the court an opportunity to talk about all the ways in which the, the military commission Hamdan was faced with departed from, right? I mean, like, you know, the laundry list of differences. Right. Um, so there's no question it was different. And, and it seems like there's no question the president had the authority if he explained that he thought it was necessary and justified, and they sort of right, dinged him the for not checking the boxes. I started there because I don't think that's the strongest. Right, right exactly. Okay. Um, the second holding for the majority is that the, the commissions were not, quote, regularly constituted courts, unquote, for purposes of common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions, which the majority holds, applies to the conflict between the United States and Al-Qaeda. So we've got to unpack that one, because that was arguably, as much as I love this topic we're deep diving yeah, into, that, was big. that is a whole other topic. The Bush administration had taken the position that, yes, there was an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, etc., uh, but... It was obviously not an international armed conflict in the sense of having a state party to the Geneva Conventions uh, on both sides. Many people took the view that, well, then it must be a non-international armed conflict, at least governed by common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, including its detainee treatment provisions, and not to mention its prosecution constraint or rights protection during trial provisions. The Bush administration said, no, 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 it's neither of these. It's not non-international because it is, in fact, global. It is, it is transnational, so it can't be non-international. Common Article 3 and non-international armed conflict on that view actually was coextensive with internal war, civil war. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, if you don't, if you have non-state actors only on one side, yep. but it's not within your own borders, then it falls between the gaps. It's just an area where we don't have Geneva Convention language. That view was rejected in Hamdan. Yep. And, and the idea was, instead, it's one or the other, and at a minimum, common Article 3 must apply. And, and, and although that was a basis for striking down the military commission, it was a much more important holding for some of the detention practices and facilities that we were then operating. Absolutely. Just to underscore it again, common Article 3, if you've never read it, you can take five minutes and you'll have all the time in the world to read it. It's very brief. It enumerates a list of baseline humanitarian protections that were that were thought so uncontested and unobjectionable that despite the fact that until common Article 3, the law of armed conflict did not expressly regulate non-international armed conflict, it was thought, well, but we can at least all agree we're going to have these rules. Right. And they basically concern certain trial rights 
and certain rules about how you treat people, whatever their status, how you treat them humanely in your custody. And so it's actually, I think, not a coincidence that not long after Hamdan, the CIA closes its black sites. Well, and and I believe uh, the the Navy immediately uh, issued uh, rules. I forget exactly how this went down, but there was a a very quick DOD intervention about detainees in DOD custody on a global basis because the common Article 3 now applying meant that the War Crimes Act, which enforces grave breaches, as it was written then, enforced grave breaches of common Article 3, suddenly, for the first time since yep. 9-11, was understood to apply. Until until Congress and the Military Commissions Act waters down the War Crimes Act. Another deep dive, oh. another occasion. Oh, God, we could do like a whole episode just on the MCA. Oh, we will. We'll, we'll have to do an episode on interrogation, for All sure. Right. Um, so, um, and then the third holding, I actually think the strongest one but ironically, the one that only gets a four-justice plurality, because Justice Kennedy declines to join it, is the holding that everything else aside, the military commission lacked jurisdiction over the offense of conspiracy, because conspiracy was not a violation of the laws of war for purposes of Article 21, the statute that the court had relied upon in curing. The one you read earlier. The one I read earlier, yeah. and the one we talked footnote 23 that we talked about in our Youngstown yeah. deep dive. Um, Bobby, I actually think this was the most compelling of the three holdings because it really maps most closely to the departure, right? To the to the point where the Guantanamo commissions were deviating from the precedent. Right. So so the commissions were actually procedurally fairly consistent with the precedent. It's just that times had changed right. and there and there was just a different atmosphere about what was going to be tolerated. But on substantive crimes charged, which turns out to be this huge shadow cast over the whole commissions ever since, this was an early indicator that indeed this was going to be a problem. Yeah, although here's the problem. Because it only got four votes, right? I think the government went back and said, huh, Justice Kennedy did not specifically say you can't try conspiracy. Um, and so I think that might have enabled some of the drafting and litigation strategy surrounding the MCA. Whereas in retrospect, it's it's realizing that mm, this was another warning sign that this is this is potentially going to be a problem. Right. We wouldn't have if only we were in civilian federal so, court. So just so just to just just so that no one misunderstands what I'm saying about Kennedy's concurrence. Kennedy did not say he disagreed with the plurality about conspiracy. Kennedy went out of his way to say I don't think I need to reach that question. But it was a big red flag. Yes. All right. So that's Hamdan. Right. Oh, back to regularly constituted court. Yeah. So is it fair to say that the nature of the flaw was that this wasn't a duly a court created by a clear statutory mandate? Correct. It was just it was it was created it was by executive law. decree. Yeah. Um, so Congress responds to the to Hamdan by enacting the Military Commissions Act of 2006. Um, the MCA does a whole lot of stuff. I just want to flag I think three things um, that are relevant here. Thing number one, it provides affirmative authorization for military commissions. So no more debate about whether Congress has actually meant to authorize So this. now it's regularly constituted. Correct. Um, thing number two, it specifically identifies, Bobby, initially 28, I think now it's 30, distinct substantive offenses that can, in fact, be tried by military commission, many of which are not war crimes, right. or at least yeah. are Well, not, it, it's styled as if they are. But right. many of which had not previously been identified as international war crimes. Uh, yeah, and at a, at a bare minimum, everyone would have to acknowledge that some of them are going to be debated, whether that's really an enumeration of a known, recognized war crime uh, that exists as a matter of international law. Right. And, the three, and the three right. biggies are inchoate conspiracy, provided material support to terrorism, and solicitation. And this is going to loom large because those are the charges you most need to go after anyone where you haven't been able to tie them to any particular plot. And this is where the story comes full circle, right? The problem of not being able to tie all these people in your custody to specific 
acts right. um, in violation of the laws of war means you need all of these secondary effects. You need all the secondary right. liability. Yeah. You need conspiracy. You need material support. You need solicitation. You, you need to be able to prosecute them and incapacitate them based on their membership. Exactly That's so. what you really are concerned okay. about because you think that is a proxy for their future dangerousness, and it is. Um, and federal criminal law has plenty of tools for exactly that reason, but international law of war, not so much. And consciously so. I mean, so so. In fact, just kind of really critical point. That's why military detention is different. Yes. That basis, your your future dangerousness because your membership is exactly why you can detain the members of the enemy armed force throughout yep. the duration of hostilities. But to go further and potentially execute or impose a sentence that will keep them incapacitated beyond the time of the armed conflict. That's where you need the criminal basis that wasn't clearly there. Congress tried to get over that by by asserting it by statute. And that's what's provoked all the litigation that we always talk about on this podcast, especially the Al-Balul cases. So just to sort of summarize in a nutshell where we've gotten to in the 12 years since the MCA was enacted. Um, the D.C. Circuit in Al-Balul 1, sitting on Bonk, held that even though Congress had authorized it, the Constitution forbids the trial of solicitation and material support by military commissions when those offenses were committed before the MCA was enacted. Ex post facto. Ex post facto. So, By the way, does that mean the Constitution applies to Guantanamo? Well, interestingly, it's suspension, right? Um, the ex post facto clause does. Per right. per the per the on banc majority. So in all you the got the one. ability to invoke the suspension clause. You got. Ex post facto. Well, you know they're next to each other. No, indeed. I know, yeah, I know, I know this well. It's, it's all part of the Structural. original Bill of Rights. The, ah, the fancy. Original, the fancy. Yeah. You, you fancy. Yeah, you see what I'm doing there. I do. Uh, but the point being, like, there's all this talk about, like, well, people want to extend the Bill of Rights or sure. extend rights to Guantanamo. Some of it already We've got this. plenty of yeah. this is already happening. Yeah. It's not obvious why others wouldn't extend right. as well. All right. So um, for pre-MCA offenses... Material support and solicitation are out on ex post facto grounds. Um, the court ducks on conspiracy, holding that it just wasn't plain error because Hamdan forfeited. Um, okay. uh, sorry, not right. Hamdan, Balul forfeited. Right. Um, goes back down to the three-judge panel. Three-judge panel in Abalul 2 says, fine, under de novo review, conspiracy, forget pre-MCA. Just in general, conspiracy is not a war crime. Article 3 forbids the trial of non-international war crimes by a law of right. war military. And so it doesn't matter if Congress says, hey, we think this might be a war crime. We, we're going to define right. the law of nations, try to punish it this way. This is pitting Article 3 versus Article 1. Exactly so. Um, panel says, nope. Goes back to the en banc DC circuit, fractures terribly in Abelul 3, produces no majority, upholds Abelul's conspiracy conviction, but only four of the nine participating judges, led by Judge Kavanaugh, um, on the because they believe that Congress in general has the power to make conspiracy triable by a military. Was commission. that under define and punish? Under define and punish. define and punish. Exactly so. Um, three judges dissent, right, from exactly that holding, mm -hmm. and two other judges found a narrower case-specific reason why they thought they didn't have to decide that question to affirm Belul's conspiracy conviction. So the huge question of whether it is constitutional under Kieran and the other precedents to try non-international war crimes before a law of war military commission is not currently settled by any court higher than the Court of Military Commission Review. Which means even if the government thinks it's got an adequate set of charges right now, it could, There's many years from now, the all the wheels can still Fall. come off. And just to be clear, there have been eight convictions to date rendered by the military commissions. Bobby, um, seven of them have included at least one non-international war crime. Five of them only 
non-international war crimes. So this is not yeah. some outlier category. This has been the bulk of the work of the military commissions. And here we are in September 2018 with no resolution of this critically important constitutional question that yeah. you and I both agree is not squarely resolved by precedent. I agree. No, it, this is, it's kind of nuts. It's all part of why we, we criticize the process so much. And, and, and just to sort of one last thing, um, in Hamdan, you had a pretrial commission. I mean, you had a pretrial habeas challenge so that at least the matter could be resolved before you went through the expense of a right. trial. And yet we no longer seem to do it that way. Well, because the D.C. Circuit in Al-Nashiri 2 by a two to one vote said, no, this is the kind of challenge yeah. that we should abstain from deciding until the commissions run their course. I've said this before, I'll say it again, forget any of the substantive debates over the jurisdiction of the military commissions, the most indefensible problematic ruling thus far under the 2006 MCA is the ruling that prevents the civilian courts from blessing the jurisdiction of the commissions ex ante. Yeah, blessing it or exposing what the problems are so we could at least know not the, go down a wasted path. So if you try, so you know, I don't mean to suggest that this is, Bobby, the sine qua non of what's wrong with the military commissions, but it all starts from this lingering structural uncertainty about the validity of their jurisdiction. There are case-specific issues that come up in the 9-11 case, in Nashiri, we've talked about those before, but the bedrock upon which all of these case-specific issues are you know, built is actually quicksand. Yeah. You know, the, the irony of it all is, there is at bottom a core of a proper role yes. in proper cases. Yes. Um, but we've built up a lot of. I like the the sand foundation analogy. We've put some buildings on this this weak foundation that can't be sustained. And the buildings themselves might actually, you know, the buildings could be of debatable structural integrity. But if you're building them on sand, yeah. it doesn't matter. All right. Well, that was friends, long. There you have it. And, and that, in a nutshell, is the history of the constitutionality of military commissions in the United States. Woohoo! It only uh, took an hour and 28 minutes. Well, I think we should skip the frivolity. And I, think just the, I, think end the this I think the frivolity is you made it this far. Yay! We love you for listening to the end of that. That's pretty awesome. Uh, listeners, we, we do love y'all. Thanks for being there. Well, t shirt update. Um, oh, it's t-shirt update. We're very close to selecting the charitable <laughs> beneficiary of you know the modest amount of money that might come from this. Uh, and once we've spoken to them, which I hope will be this week, we should pretty quickly be able to put these shirts into production and uh, get that out. And you can start wearing some National Security Law Podcast swag. Dude, I am, I am rocking that all over town. I got to say, I don't know if anyone else is going to like it, but I really like the shirt design. All right. Well, all right. well, well the, the reveal is coming, my friends. Indeed. All right. So uh, with that, we'll be back episode 92 next week, probably with some more current events. I suspect we'll yeah. have some stuff to say by then. Um, until then, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. He's at Bobby Chesney. We are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe out there. Adios.